Hi everyone, today we're gonna to continue on in our series, More Than a Feeling, and we're gonna be talking today about love. So let's get right to it. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now many of you guys know this already as the love chapter, and uh, a lot of you guys that are married will know that this is a chapter that is often used in weddings. And we're gonna to today look at how God interacts with us through his love. And 1 Corinthians 13 is just a great example of his love, and so we're gonna start there today. So once you find it, let's go ahead and read. It says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. <clears throat> and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you have given us not only your love, which is amazing in and of itself, but you've also given us a good picture, a perfect picture of what that love looks like and how we can emulate it towards one another. I pray that today as we study your word, as we look to different passages in scripture, that you would speak clearly in what you want us to know, that your words would come to life and that we would experience your love in new ways that cause us to desire to love differently towards one another. We thank you so much for who you are and what you've done in our lives. In your name, amen. So the truth of the matter is we could spend hours upon hours, if not days, if not weeks, if not years, talking about the subject of God's love and how we should love. But this is our perfect example here in 1 Corinthians 13 that talks about that love. And it becomes very clear as we read this passage that love is definitely a verb, if you know that old DC talk song. But love is a verb that takes on new meaning when we actually try and practice it the way that God practices it towards us. And it is an active word. <laughs> so love is not just something that happens. It's active. It's changing. It's, it's uh, new. Actually, it's not changing. And we're going to talk about that first, which is God's love is steadfast. And steadfast is, well, it has a lot of different terms and a lot of different definitions, but we're going to look specifically at verses 4 through 8 in this steadfast love. It says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up, nor does it behave rudely, does not seek its own. It is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in all things, hopes all things endures all things. And then in the first section of verse eight, it says, love never fails. 
So when we look at this idea, this example of what a steadfast love is, we know that it means firm. If you look at it completely defined, it means firm and unwavering resolutely or dutifully. And so this idea of steadfastness gives us this idea that it is a rock. It's not going to change. The entire Bible references God's steadfast love 222 times or 221 times. And for those of you guys that may be wondering, yes, that is a lot of times. Uh, if you think about it this way, when we try and reiterate something, we say it a couple of times so that people really understand how serious it is. Well, God chose in his word to tell, tell us that his love was steadfast or unchanging or firm 221 times at least. The Hebrew word used for steadfast is hesed, and it can be translated as immovable or, or not subject to change. So there's no changing it. It is a rock that cannot be moved. It does not come under any kind of change. The word for this kind of love in the New Testament, as many of us already know, is agape. And this love means that it's unconditional. It means that it's unchangeable. And that is, that is a perfect love. The agape love is a perfect love. Um, God's love is not dependent on our actions, on what we do. He loves us unconditionally, and his love is not changed towards us, his creation, based on what we do or do not do. He loves us unchangeably. And so there's nothing that you can do. It's, it's co commonly said, there is nothing that you can do to change God's love towards you. That's 100% true, and we're going to be looking at that in great detail. But we need to be careful with these kinds of sayings because though God's love is immovable and unchanging, that does not mean that his love for us is approval of all of our actions. And so just because he shows us love and just because he loves us, that does not mean that he approves of all of the things that we do. It means that he loves us in spite of what we do. It means that he loves us regardless of what we do. And so we need to make no mistake that God is a righteous and holy God and he cannot approve of sinful actions. And he cannot uh, promote or even in the end of things, uh, he can't even be tolerant of those sinful actions. Now, right now he has a certain level of tolerance but eventually everyone will stand before God. Everyone will stand at his judgment seat and have to give an account for their actions. And he cannot tolerate a sinful life. God does indeed love us even when we are rebelling against him. But uh, he loves us too much to leave us in that rebellion. He loves us too much to leave us in that sin. He calls us to a life that is holy and set apart. Uh, turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6, says this, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if we were, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. 
And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Jump one page over to the right to chapter six, and we're going to start in verse five. It says, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. These two passages give us a very clear image of what we were just talking about of where God views us in our sin. Now, we were once dead in our sins, but once we have come to know life in Christ, once we have come to salvation, then we are, we are dead to our sins, not dead in our sins. And so there's this idea that his righteousness, his holiness is given to us, imparted to us through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And so that in in and of itself shows us that his love is so great that yes, he came to die for you because he loved you so much. And he loves you so much still that he is not willing to let you just live in your sin. We are not to just live in our sin anymore. We are to now pick up our cross and follow him as Paul directs us. And as Jesus talks about even later, and we talked about earlier in this series, in the joy series, that we are to obey him. And we're going to talk about that even more. Because of his death on the cross, which was a perfect picture of his love for us, we now should die to our sins and be alive in God through Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles again, if you would, to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, uh, I think, is a forgotten love chapter that we, we often forget about because we often don't read 1 John. It's a shorter book. But 1 John, John in general was kind of a hippie. He, he was all about the love. Um, but 1 John in particular is a very love-filled book. And 1 John chapter 4 specifically is very loving in its language. And so 1 John chapter 4, uh, we're going to start in verse 4 here. It says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as the world, and the world hears them. We are of God, he who knows God hears us, uh, he who does, is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. There's this idea that we have overcome these spirit of truth or the spirit of error. We have overcome Satan uh, and the enemy. And he who is in us, Jesus Christ, is greater than he who is in the world, uh, the enemy, Satan. God's love is firm for us. So, It is unwavering, it is unchanging, and he has come into our lives so that we can now have victory over our sin. We are no longer attached to our sin, we have overcome our sin. And so that's kind of the definition of what it means to be free in Christ, free from sin, is this idea that we are no longer slaves to what the world is slaves to, we are a slave to Jesus Christ, if you look at it in the technical terms. (coughs) Excuse me. 
Again, Romans 8, 37 through 39 says this, Yet in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing on this earth that can remove us from the love of God. Now, again, you can get into, does that mean just believers or non-believers too or whatever? I think if we look at it scripturally, I think that we see that God loves his creation unconditionally and nothing can remove us from that love for us. Regardless of our standing with God, he loves us. Now, again, that doesn't mean that he approves of our actions, and it also does not mean that he won't punish our actions when the time comes. It just means that he loves us. And so love can be brokenhearted, and we see that with God. And so even in our own lives, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, but even in our own lives, if you're a parent, you know what it means to love your child, even if you're brokenhearted for them. And so that's the next step that we want to take is we we looked at this idea of God's love being steadfast and immovable. Well, God's love also corrects wrongs. Turn, if you will, to Hebrews. And we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 12. If I can find it here. Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to start in verse 3. It says this, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons, as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Do not be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure the chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed to best, best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards yields it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Something that needs to be clear before we kind of break down this passage, something that we need to talk about that needs to be very clear is that a lot of these passages are meant for people and are written to with the assumption that the people that are reading it are believers. It is not necessarily intended for the non-believer here. And so we can't say to a non-believer necessarily that you are being chastened by God because, as it says, fathers, if you are chastened by God, it means that you are his son or his daughter. And so we need to be careful with that. And we just need to be clear on that. This passage in particular is not written for unbelievers. It is written for those of us who have already accepted Jesus Christ, have already chosen to follow him or, or have had him reach out to Uh, us. Uh, When we experience the chastening of the Lord as sons and daughters, our reaction should not be, why does God hate me? 
but rather we should rejoice because the holy God of the universe loves us so much that he would correct us in our wrongdoing. Again, it even says here at the end in verse 11, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We are to be trained by God, and the way he does that is through chastening. Part of the way he does that is through chastening. And it's weird, sometimes it's, it's kind of a complex thing to think that his chastening equates to his love for us. But think about the father or the mother who lets their son or daughter go stick their hand into a wall outlet and just allows them to go through that pain and that suffering. They may have to smack the hand or give them a stern talking to or whatever, however discipline works in your household, you may want to do that. But if you don't do it, it shows no love whatsoever because you're essentially letting your child die. Whereas if you, if you train them, if you, if you chasten them, if you, if you show them the error of their ways, well, now they're going to not do that anymore and they're going to live a safer, healthier life. Proverbs 3 uh, verses 11 and 12 say this, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his corrections. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. And so we should not despise the chastening of the Lord. We should not look at it as a negative thing. We should look at it as an opportunity to worship God better through our understanding, through our learning, through our understanding what he is trying to show us and what he is trying to do through us and in us. Parents do not discipline their children because they hate them, but because they want to, them to grow into mature adults. The Lord's chastening in the same way, causes us to mature and grow closer to him and grow more intimate with him in that chastening. No one is saying that chastisement is fun. It even says that here in Hebrews uh, chapter 12. It talks about the idea again, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. So nobody is saying that ch chastisement is fun, but it, it is necessary to learn how to better follow God. And not only that, how to follow his rules. You see, oftentimes we break rules and we don't even realize it. But when God chastens us, we understand, oh, I shouldn't do that anymore because God is not approving of it. Again, this love from God is not dependent on our actions. We experience his love even more when we abide in him. <clears throat> he has an unlimited resource of love for us. And that's part of that agape love, is it is unconditional and unlimited. It is a perfect love. And so he has this unlimited resource of love and we're able to draw on that resource and through our obedience to his commands, we can experience even more of the resource that he has made available to us. Turn to Matthew, if you will, chapter uh, 14, excuse me. I'm sorry, excuse me. Uh, turn to John chapter 14. Jesus is speaking with his uh, disciples here and Judas, not Iscariot in verse 22 said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. There is this idea that the more we obey God, 
the more love he has for us. And again, we're going to talk about that in a sense, because his love does not increase or decrease. Again, it's unchangeable. It's unmoving. But the access to the resource of his love increases as we are obedient to him. We get to experience more of his love as we are obedient to him. And so that just shows us that God actually truly does love us. And, and we are the ones who control that throttle of how much love God's love we experience. And it's a weird, complex thing. But if you think about it this way, when I am obedient to God, I am able to experience God more fully. And when I experience God more fully, I experience his love more perfectly. And the more perfectly I experience his love, the more of his love I get to experience. And so it's not that he loves me more when I am obedient. It's that I actually get to experience his love more when I am obedient. So we looked at this idea that, that God's love corrects wrongs. And in that, we cannot ignore the fact that God's love is merciful. God's love is merciful. And so we want to look at Ephesians uh, for this one. If I can turn there. Uh, there it is. <laughs> so Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read just starting in verse 1. It says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the co course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, in which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not the works not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's this idea that God has shown us great mercy. And, and so to understand the mercy of God, there is definitely the old, if, you, if you've been a Christian since the 90s, or if you remember the 90s, even you'll know this saying of mercy is defined as uh, not getting what you deserve. And I, I do, in fact, like this definition of mercy, but we need to look at what we deserve to understand what mercy is that we're not deserving or that we're not getting. <laughs> and so if, if we, we understand the fact that we deserve judgment, we deserve punishment, we deserve an eternity in hell. Uh, Paul says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God says, be holy for I am holy. And to actually experience his eternity, if you will, uh, we have to be perfect. And that's impossible for all have sh fallen short of the glory of God. And so mercy is get if mercy is getting, not getting what you deserve, then what we deserve is hell, but we don't get hell when we follow Jesus. We get something quite different. 
John 3.16, and many of you guys will be familiar with this, says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in, in the name of the Holy, only begotten Son of God. When we have chosen to not believe in Jesus, that is us deciding that we don't want the mercy of God because in his mercy, he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins, for the forgiveness of our sins. We are choosing when we don't believe in him to turn down that payment. As Hebrews says, it's that propitiation, the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the him, him making our payment to God. We, we have chosen to not follow that. And when we choose to do that, we have chosen to experience the full wrath of God come the judgment day. Those of us who have chosen to follow Jesus, those of us who have chosen to, uh, you know, a life with him. And again, I'm making all the Calvinists cringe, I know, by using the word chosen. But those of us who have followed God and have followed Jesus, well, we don't experience that wrath anymore because we come under his mercy and we come under his grace as well. And, and if mercy is not getting what you do deserve, grace is getting what you don't deserve. And that's where grace comes in is we get to experience eternity with God in heaven. These verses provide an excellent picture of the mercy of God uh, that he has for us through his son, Jesus Christ. Again, God did not have to come to die on a cross. Jesus did not have to come. He could have left us dead in our trespasses. As we've talked about in Romans, we were dead in our trespasses. We were enemies with God. We were at war with God. And he chose in his mercy to come down and to suffer the pain of the cross and death so that we could experience his life and eternal life. We were enemies of God, condemned with no hope, but Jesus Christ stepped in to make a payment on our behalf. And he did this because of his love for us. He did this because he desired a relationship with us. And the only way to have that relationship with us was to fix the chasm that was between us and God. So in conclusion, we want to talk about this. How then should we live? If God loves us like we have talked about, how then should we live? If God's love is the ultimate example to us of how we should be loving one another, we look to these attributes as our model of how to love one another. We look to how God loved us. And to do that, I want to turn back again to our original text, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I want to read those verses one more time, specifically verses 4 through 8. And I want you to think about how you are doing these things specifically in your life to show love to others. Jesus said, they'll know you by your love for one another. And so with all of the different uh, temperature in the water these days with political opinion or opinions about, well, whatever, how are you showing love to specifically your enemies, but also just to your brothers and sisters who disagree with you when we read through these verses, starting in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 13. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, 
does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then he, as if to put an exclamation on it in verse 8, love never fails. And so when we look at how we are to love one another, these four verses give us a perfect image of how we can do that as God loved us. I'm not saying that it's easy, and I'm not saying that I am perfect at this at all. In fact, I struggle with this a lot. But these verses do help me, and I hope help you, align our emotion, love, to God's will in that emotion, which is a perfect love. It is the agape love, the unconditional love, the love that never changes, regardless of how you and I may differ in our opinions. Love does not change. A godly love does not change based on those heightened sense of emotions. This here in 1 Corinthians 13 is the perfect picture of love. And we can see it played out by our creator in his love for us being poured out through his son on a cross. You see, he did not want to leave us in that sin. He did not want to leave us in that place of hopelessness. He wanted a relationship with us. The only way that relationship was going to happen is either by us becoming perfect somehow, which becoming perfect is an oxymoron. It's impossible to become perfect. You either are perfect or you are not. And he saw that, and he saw that we were dead in our trespasses. He saw that we were (laughs) flailing, trying to have relationship with him and relationship with the world and all these other things. And so he sent his son to be the perfect image of that love, to be the perfect one who come, came down and lived a perfect life, an entire perfect life. And he was condemned to death, convicted as guilty for sins that he didn't commit, for crimes he didn't commit. And he was put up on a tree And he was crucified in one of the most heinous ways that a person can be put to death. Our God, the God of the universe, was put on a cross. And he died. And then he rose again three days later to show that death had been conquered. And if we confess our sins and believe, then he is faithful to forgive us of those sins. And so now we have that restored relationship with him and that is fantastic and it is good for me and I hope that it is good for you. But there's more to it now because A, if we love him like we say we do, then we will obey his commands. And that means that we are studying his word. We are looking to his word to give us our direction in life. And when we say that we love him, that means we also love each other. Regardless of how we feel about the other person, we are to love that person. I think about how many relationships, I can just think off on the top of my head right now, of people that, well, I'm not going to that event. Why not? Because that person's going to be there. That doesn't show godly love. Or I read Facebook posts, or I even post things on my Facebook, or whatever. Social media is just a terrible area. But You read these things online and it is 
the line is being drawn in the sand and you're either on that side or you're on my side. And if you're on that side, then don't talk to me anymore. And I want nothing to do with you. And I'm going to spread as much manure as I can about you until you see the error of your ways and start loving me the way I want to be loved, which is agreeing with me. God loves everyone, regardless of whether or not they agree with him. Now again, that doesn't mean that he approves of what they're doing, but he loves them. And I think we would do better as Christians to show that we love one another purposefully. Forgive the person that needs to be forgiven and stop talking about them. Reach out to them and say, I know that we, we have differences, but that's okay because God's love overcomes those differences. Maybe, maybe there's a person that has hurt you in some way and you need to forgive them, but you need to not go out to coffee with them. That's okay too. We can show love from a distance. And so I challenge us to be better at loving one another the way God has loved us. Where we do not behave rudely toward one another. We do not puff up towards one another. We do not think evil of one another. We don't, we don't rejoice in iniquity but we rejoice in truth. Let us have a love that never fails towards one another. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that your love is a perfect love that, that just never ends and it never changes. And Lord, we know that you are a righteous God and you are a judge and one day you will judge this world and we want to be standing behind your son when that day comes. And so, Lord, I pray for that person that has not experienced your love, I pray that they would start to seek you out. And Lord, that you would seek them out and that they would find you. And Lord, that you would grab them. I pray that they would understand that being in sin is not the place you want to be when you stand before judgment. Lord, and that they would understand that your son has come to die on a cross so that they don't have to stand before that judgment and that they would confess their sins and that they would believe in him and then that they would start obeying your commands. Lord, I pray that you would help those of us who are Christians, those of us who are brothers and sisters and sons and daughters to love one another better. I can't think of a time in definitely not my life, but even in recent history where the church was so divided on so many things. And Lord, it's okay to disagree with each other, but we need to do it amicably. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us to forgive those who we need to forgive and love those who we need to love. Lord, let us look and dive deep into 1 Corinthians 13 into Romans 5 and 6, Ephesians 2, 1 John 4, all of these scriptures that you have given us to, to exemplify your love. We pray that you would just speak to us through your word. We love you, we thank you, and we praise your name. Amen.